to speak or not to speak? That is the question. Every day that God gives each one of us, we are faced with untold amounts of decisions with what we will do with our words. We're faced with scores of opportunities every day to use our words for good or for not-so-good purposes in our lives. To use our words to build others up for their utmost joy and encouragement and protection, even their growth and their faith in Jesus. Or we choose to use our words to tear others down, to belittle them, uh, to dismiss them, so that other people's perception of them is skewed, perhaps for their downfall and for our advantage. In his life, Jesus himself faced hostile and hateful words that were unfairly ushered against him, words that were distorted, skewed, twisted, in order for the crowds to distrust Jesus, dismiss Jesus, disregard Jesus, and ultimately to ruin his life, his reputation, and his ministry. But in the face of such vitriol, Jesus himself spoke this following word of warning to the religious hypocrites in his day, a word that we all need to be reminded of in our day too, of the accountability we have before God with the words we speak, the words we text, the words we tweet, and the words we write about and to other people. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 33 to 37, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So friends, when you're at work and you see your boss or a fellow colleague do or say something that is unethical, immoral, or untrue, do you speak up or do you keep to yourself? Are you a whistleblower or are you a muted doormat who just lets it happen. When your spouse or sibling says something to you that gets under your skin, do you immediately correct them, argue back with them, or say nothing at all? When anyone, for that matter, says something that offends us, irritates us, or assumes something incorrectly about our motives, who in this proverb most often describes you and I? Proverbs 12, verse 16, the vexation, that word means anger and frustration. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Or how about when you're sent an article or a screenshot? Here we are in smartphone technology. 
via text message or email from a family member or friend. Maybe they're excited about what they've sent you, but the content of the article or whatever the screenshot contained leaves you feeling uneasy and unsettled. The content seems off. Perhaps it's full-blown lies, heresy, anti-biblical rhetoric, or just some juicy gossip they want you to spread to others. Do you say something back to your friend? Or do you give an ambiguous thumbs-up emoji, hoping they don't ask you what you think? The words we choose to speak and not speak are important for many reasons. According to Jesus, our words reveal our hearts. Our words show how much we believe God hears our words and that he cares about what we say and about what we don't say. And our words also reveal to us and to others how we are perceiving circumstances, how we are interpreting other people's actions, other people's words, other people's motives towards us. That's why it's important for each one of us to do the following. We should make sure we speak that which is true in response to what we know is true and not simply to what we want to be true. We should make sure we speak that which is true in response to what we know is true and not simply to what we want to be true. To do so otherwise is to be presumptuous and dishonest. In his book, War of Words, author Paul David Tripp double-clicks on this very important point. He says this, quote, Good, godly communication is always dependent on truth. Lies, falsehood, and deception always subvert it. Lies not only distort facts, but they destroy the trust necessary for people to talk with one another. Every word we speak is rooted either in the truth or in a lie. Most of our communication problems come because we deceive, distort, and manipulate with our words. We reshape the facts to our advantage. We recast events, often to the point of convincing ourselves that our perspective is true. Beloved, the content of our words matters to God. Even the timing, the audience, and the motives to which we speak these words matters to God as well. So to my fellow Christian, are your words and my words helping or hurting our witness for Christ? Do you and I speak up when we should be silent? And do you and I remain silent when we should speak up? To speak or not to speak? That is the question. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 53 to 72. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 490. 
7. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. You can take that Bible in the chair bag or pew as a gift from our church to you. Last week, we left off in the first stage of Jesus' darkest hour that he would ever face on earth. Just as he had foretold to his disciples in previous days gone by, he gave them the purpose for which he came to this earth, which was ultimately to die. And not to die through any ordinary or natural human death like what we would consider for ourselves, but to die at the hands of evil and lawless men, all according to God's heavenly perfect plan in order to drink the cup of his father's wrath for the sins of his people. Without being the author of evil or tempting anyone to sin, all the preceding awful events from Mark 14 to 15 that would occur in Jesus' life all occur according to the predestined plan of God. Think with me for a minute. That includes the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, one of his closest disciples. To the sinful choices and sleepy disciples who fell down on the job in the Garden of Gethsemane. To the fickle and cowardice decisions of his disciples abandoning him when the enemies of Christ came to arrest him. All the way down to the nitty-gritty details of the exact hour he would be unjustly seized by the authorities. All of that. Every single person was 100% responsible for their words and actions against Jesus. And yet simultaneously, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is working out his perfect plan of redemption even in the darkest hours of our Lord's life. Notice again with me what Jesus said about all these events and how he wasn't phased or afraid of any of them. Look back with me just briefly, Mark 14, verses 46 to 50. Mark 14, starting in verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. We pick up today in our next section as we see Jesus enter the second stage of his darkest hours on earth. Jesus now will face his opponents bodily, physically, audibly, as they hurl charges at him to have him unjustly incriminated and eventually crucified. Mark 14, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down. And wept. This is God's word. In our passage this morning, we're going to observe and listen to the words spoken and not spoken that will be instructive for our words and our witness for Jesus in our lives. If you're taking notes, I have three main points that will serve as an outline. Point number one listen to the sadistic interrogation made against Jesus. Listen to the sadistic interrogation made against Jesus. Point number two, notice the silent strength of Jesus when he was slandered. Notice the silent strength of Jesus when he was slandered. Point number three, learn from the sad denials by a disciple of Jesus. Learn from the sad denials by a disciple of Jesus. So we should do three things. If you're going, that's just too long for me to write, Pastor. We should listen. We should notice. We should learn. Point number one, listen to the sadistic interrogation made against Jesus. Look at me starting in verse 53 again. And they led Jesus to the high priest. 
And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Here we are seeing Jesus under the Father's sovereign plan being led to the high priest in Jerusalem at this time. The Jewish high priest that served during Jesus' ministry and a few years afterward was a man named Caiaphas. He presided over the Sanhedrin from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36 and was the son-in-law of the powerful high priest Annas. His name isn't explicitly mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, but it is mentioned multiple times in the other Gospel accounts. Places like Matthew 26, Luke chapter 3, and John 11 and John 18. The high priest served as the Jewish people's representative to God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, as the high priest Caiaphas would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple to offer sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. Caiaphas was in charge of the temple treasury, controlled the temple police and lower-ranking priests in attendance, and he ruled over the Sanhedrin. All that to say this, guys, Caiaphas was a big deal. He was a powerful and influential man. When he spoke, when the mic got brought to his mouth, so to speak, people listened. And that was obvious from his, how his words could influence mass crowds that wanted to take Jesus out. You don't need to turn there, but you can jot this down and read more later. John 11, verses 47 to 53 is a great example of how when Caiaphas speaks up, many of the Jews in the Sanhedrin did what he said. John 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And here we see in verse 53, very clearly who the they are who led Jesus to Caiaphas on that cold, dark, late Thursday night. Of the they there certainly includes Judas. It certainly includes some of those Roman soldiers. In fact, possibly even hundreds. But it also involved the chief priests, the scribes, and elders that were referred to back in Mark 14, verse 43. And what do we see now? They're joining up with their cronies. They're joining up with their religious mob as one cohesive unit against Jesus. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? We've been studying the gospel of Mark on and off for two years. All the way back from Mark 3 to even now. Their agenda has only been to do Jesus harm. In verse 55, even notice there the cohesiveness, uh, the totality of people ganging up against Jesus. It says the whole council. Uh, The Greek text literally is translated from the word we get now, Sanhedrin. So if your translation says the whole Sanhedrin or the whole council, it's referring to the same 71 men. 
And up until this point, these men have been fearful cowards. They cared a lot about what the crowds thought of Jesus. They were fearful that if they tried to take Jesus out in open public eye, well, they too would be discredited because many of the people flocked to Jesus. But now in the wee hours of the night, when circumstances seem now to be in their favor, they finally made their move. They've already had their secret meetings behind closed doors, and they're now ready to execute their plan. They've got Jesus literally in their hands. He's in their class to put him away and remove him out of their lives once and for all. They have nothing but evil intentions flowing in their veins against Jesus. So what do these men do once they arrive? What do they do now when they have bodily and physically in their grasp our Lord? Well, they make it to the courtyard. They make it to that open space, that courtyard that belonged to that very powerful man, Caiaphas. And then they begin to interrogate him. They begin to cross-examine him with a rapid-fire round of accusations. Look with me now at verses 55 to 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Here we see these venomous snakes, as if a bunch of snakes were in a pit together, spit nothing but poisonous lies about Jesus, to Jesus. In our common vernacular today, these men were all on an all-out witch hunt against Jesus to take Jesus down. They had been cold calling, gathering as much ammo of accusations and political petitions from confused, callous, and cold-hearted people. They have been saving and storing up as much hearsay. Did you notice there in verse 58, we heard him say? You know the game telephone that we might play as kids? One person starts off saying something, goes to the next, goes to the next. By the time you get to the 10th person, the whole story's been rechanged. That's what's happening here. A lot of hearsay. Did you hear? Did you know? These men want to have the narrative rewritten. They want to have the truth twisted, all in order to muzzle Jesus and leave him without defense. They were hurling accusation after accusation, charge after charge, testimony after testimony, with various indictments against him. But what happened? Did any of their accusations stick? Was any of their hearsay credible and true? Did any of their testimonies against him hold water? Did their demonic dogpile succeed? 
Well, did you notice three times Mark records for us? It appears their charges weren't adding up. Their stories were so contradictory and inconsistent that instead of being a slam dunk court hearing, it was a dumpster fire of failure. It was a mass hysteria, mass chaos. It was a Southern Baptist convention gone wild. It was mass media mudslinging that actually backfired on them on that very cold and dark night. Again, listen to the conflicting testimonies. Verse 55, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found, how, what did they find? None. Verse 56, their testimony did not agree. Verse 59, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Friends, back in the Old Testament, which several of these principles are applied even in the New Testament, you could not charge someone as guilty of a crime without sufficient evidence of having more than one credible testimony for a capital offense to be punished. For example, these are great for you to jot down. I would encourage you to do so, so that you can study more about biblical case law and due process. Numbers 35, verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And again, I think a more robust passage is Deuteronomy 19. Verses 15 to 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Listen to this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, listen to this, and has accused his brother falsely, do you know what's supposed to happen to him under the old covenant? Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Friends, this is called biblical justice. This is biblical inspired Holy written of God, righteousness. The punishment should fit the crime. And to falsely accuse someone without credible evidence that is verifiable by more than one witness is a crime itself 
according to God's standard of justice. Oddly enough, these men of the Sanhedrin who boasted in their knowledge of God's word and taught others to obey it, they were the ones who were at total odds with the clear teaching of Scripture. Friends, this is a good reminder for us now. We should not teach God's word to others if we first haven't taught and applied God's word to our own lives. The greatest way to prevent hypocrisy from spreading in a church, from spreading in a family, from spreading in our individual relationships is we have no business at all telling people what to do with their spiritual lives if we first haven't looked in the mirror of God's word ourselves, We should first submit, learn, listen, and obey for ourselves first before we teach others the same. Let me give you a quick way to remember this. We first look down into the word. We then look up to God in prayer and ask for his help in understanding his word. We then look in at our hearts and our lives and submit ourselves in obedience to God's word. And then, and only then, do we teach others what God has first shown, taught, and applied to our own lives. We look down, we look up, we look in, and then we speak out the truth that has so transformed our own hearts. And here's the irony. These men are bringing multiple charges against Jesus, but their charges don't agree. They don't match. They don't hold any water. Secondly, according to God's word, as we already just read, if someone was a malicious witness that arised to accuse a person of wrongdoing and then they were found out as being a faulty witness, a liar, spreading rumors and gossip and slander, friends, under the Mosaic law, they were to be punished with the same crime they were accusing someone else of committing. These 70-plus men, could you imagine it? It's cold. It's a late Thursday night. Jesus hasn't slept probably in 24 hours. He's been in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping, dropping blood from his pores. He's being carried away by yelling and anger and slander and accusation and cross-examining and interrogation. And they're all saying, he's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. And yet according to verse 55 and in verse 64, they want this man not just arrested, they want him dead. But the irony of this kangaroo pre-court hearing is that they were the ones under God's law who should have been condemned to death. Brothers and sisters, even as Christians living today under the new covenant, we are called to exercise the same biblical principles of due process as Israel was under the old. The punishments might look different. Our legal systems might look different. But the principles about how we investigate, examine, and draw conclusions, listen, about other people's actions and other people's character, it must be upheld by God's standard of justice. 
unless we have multiple examples of verifiable evidence, we should be slow in our conclusions about someone else's actions or character. This is precisely the same principle Jesus instructed his own disciples, one that we too today are hearing of what would characterize biblical churches who take membership serious. So if there are disputes in your life, sharp disagreements that could cause sinful divisions, fair and unfair criticisms, or perhaps accusations of egregious and unrepentant sin amongst professing believers, Jesus gives us his perfect and wise plan for how to handle it. Listen afresh to these New Testament passages that are binding on New Covenant, blood-bought, post-Pentecost Christians. Jesus in his own ministry in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 17. Listen to this, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Listen, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Ha! Huh, does that sound familiar? Oh, it's Old Testament. Yeah, it's Jesus. That's Jesus interpreting the law and applying it to his hearers. He's getting that from Numbers 35. He's getting that from Deuteronomy 17. He's getting that from Deuteronomy 19, what we just read. And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, friends, this is not only true for corrective church discipline when members of the local church profess to know Christ but live styles of life that are unrepentant in sin or how we even handle accusations, charges, fair and unfair criticisms against members and against pastors. Uh, friends, even Paul picks up this same teaching from Jesus, the same teaching from Moses, and applies it to how you relate to pastors. 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 21. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where did he get that from? Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So you can see the consistency here in God's word. Old Testament, New Testament. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three shall a charge be established. Friends, we should examine verifiable evidence from more than one witness before we draw conclusions about another person's character or actions. So let me give you some ways on how you can apply this to your own life. If you're a member of this church here at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church and you find yourself in any of these sticky, gray, or difficult matters that can't be resolved between you and another person, you might need to consult a pastor or an elder or another wise man or woman of God that you trust. Don't try to face these difficulties alone. Say, for an example, you're facing an accusation, a charge, a criticism, or rebuke from another person. It could be a believer in the church. 
to be an unbeliever outside the church. If you disagree with their charge, and the conflict can't be resolved between you and the other party, what should you do? Well, apart from prayer, reading scripture, and careful reflection, you want to ask others for guidance and how to respond to the charge if you're in disagreement with it. You may simply ask a pastor or a mentor if they believe the charge is true. Do they see the same sin, error, critique, or blemish in my life as the other person sees? Uh, in his article, Giving and Receiving Godly Criticism, it's a good one to look up, Giving and Receiving Godly Criticism by Garrett Kell. He wisely reminds us of the importance of cultivating this humble posture of asking others if these charges are true. He says this, assume you need to be corrected. Proverbs 12, 15 reminds us that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Do you assume you need people in your life to critique and correct you? Do you assume others can see things in you that you might be blind to? It's foolish to presume that even on our best days, we cannot be helped by the critical insight of others. Oh, going on in the article, he goes on to say, what do you do when you get a, a whole heap of accusations or harsh criticism or critiques or even false claims about yourself? It's a whole heap of it. What should you do? Here's what the humble person does. He says this, look for a nugget of gold even amidst the heap of trash they throw at you. In other words, even if 99% of what they're saying is wrong, humbly and prayerfully look for the one that could be true. If you're here today and you're finding yourself in legal matters, it might be wise to seek counsel from those who are lawyers. As much as possible, if you can, consult legal counsel from a lawyer who is also a Christian. They can both educate you on the laws of the land, on both the state and federal level, and they can pray for you as a brother and sister in Christ. Here at CCBC, we have members who are believers that are like-minded in theology and in membership, but they also have skill and training and expertise in legal matters that are way beyond my jurisdiction, way beyond my training and knowledge, and probably way beyond many of ours. Uh, on a personal note, I occasionally reach out to lawyers, and I do my best to find the Christian ones. And I'm trying to help members out think well about situations they might be in, situations like going into a lawsuit, or when they are being sued, or going to court, or sometimes shepherding members to think carefully about what it might look like not to go to court and to settle a dispute amongst themselves. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 8 is a good place to study on that point. For those of you who work as lawyers or in some form of our legal system, or you're contemplating being a lawyer one day, I pray that God would encourage you in your work. Thank you for your care to uphold justice, but also caring for brothers and sisters in Christ. Back to Mark 14. As we see, this initial wave of testimonies was a face plant of failure for Jesus' opponents. So what happened next? Point number two, notice the silent strength of Jesus when he was slandered. Look with me at verses 60 to 65. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent 
and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Friends, the most powerful and influential man amongst the Sanhedrin was in that courtyard on that dark and cold night. And when all the false testimonies are coming up as a bunch of junk, it wouldn't end up. They looked foolish. Then he spoke up. Caiaphas spoke up. At first, Caiaphas is shocked that Jesus doesn't immediately respond to his accusers. Jesus's silence unsettled Caiaphas. Jesus' calm and confident disposition deeply disturbed the high priest's soul. Friends, there's a good reminder for us, isn't there? In a heated argument or a sinful, divisive, going-nowhere debate, sometimes silence speaks the loudest. Sometimes silence can convict a guilty conscience. Verse 60 and 61 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. But here's a good question. Was Jesus' silence a sign of fear and timidity? Was Jesus' silence a sign of affirmation and agreement that his accusers were right in their testimonies against him? No, not at all. Not even for a second. Friends, Jesus was not guilty of any charge. He was sinless, spotless, perfect, without fault, without blemish. The testimony of the apostles is that he knew no sin. And neither was deceit ever found in his mouth. Friends, Jesus' silence was a sermon without words. Jesus' silence was a sermon without words. Well, how do we know that? Friends, it was prophesied many years previously that this is exactly what the Messiah would do. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its hearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't resist, fight, or try to escape this devilish, dark, unjust, unlawful pretrial hearing. But why? 
Why doesn't Jesus revolt and retaliate? Why doesn't he take a big gob of mud and sling it right back in their face? Why doesn't he revile in return? Well, friends, it's because Jesus had already submitted his life, body, and soul to his Father's will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He had submitted his will and his desires to his heavenly Father's will before, listen to this, before he was put on trial under that fierce and unjust opposition. Friends, you know, you know one of the reasons we fail in our witness for Christ is because we think we need to be heard before we need to get low and pray. Jesus had already prepared his heart before he entered the hour of his darkness when he told his father, your will be done. That means through Jesus' silence, he is speaking loudly. He is living out his theology. He is embracing suffering. He's accepting reviling because of his love and trust in his father and in his father's will. Friends, he remains silent knowing that God is the sovereign judge, not Caiaphas, not Judas, not his cowardly disciples, not this cold, dreary night, some kind of accident, coincidence. It's all a part of his plan. It's all happening according to plan. He is contained. He is controlled, not because circumstances are pleasant. No, they're horrible but because his eyes, his heart, and his trust is on the one who holds it all together. He knows his father sees their sin, hears their sin, and will judge all sin. Friends, that's where that calmness comes from. You know what meekness is, right? Meekness is power under control. It's humble boldness. It's omnipotent power that has been contained to only speak and act according to God's will. Friends, Jesus here is suffering what he suffered, not only because he loved his father, but because he loved sinners like us too. He willingly chose to drink the cup of his father's wrath and bear up the sufferings he would suffer for our sins in our place, but also to leave us an example of how to suffer well in our lives. Did you know that? In the cross, absolutely and clearly, it is about our sins being nailed to that tree on that man's body. Jesus was God forsaken so that we would be accepted in the beloved. But another reason that the cross instructs us today, teaches us today, is not just justification not just forgiveness of sins, not just the promise of eternal heaven, but it is to teach us how to suffer well in our own lives. Friends, you know that we can sin in our suffering and we can suffer because of our sin. Do you see that? I just gave you one sentence of Job, okay? Job didn't do anything wrong. Fear God, turned away from evil. Didn't suffer for his sin, but he ended up sinning in his suffering. Jesus never sinned, 
And he had no suffering consequences to face for his sin because he never had it. And Jesus never sinned in his suffering. That's a savior. That's an example. That's why 1 Peter tells us, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, did you know Peter, who wrote that, saw that? Before he taught that, he watched it. In his silence, Christ was fulfilling the scriptures of Isaiah 53. He is the eternal word who became flesh, and he knew when to speak, when not to speak. He knew who to speak to and who not to waste his words talking to. He obeyed his own teaching that we need to listen to from time to time. Actually, all the time, just depends on who you're talking to. Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus hears the false rhetoric about him, and he chooses not to respond, yell, argue, or debate with them. He knows their unbelief, and their hardened hearts would not listen to him anyway. And so Jesus wisely, under control, boldly yet humbly, refrains from responding to their false testimonies. Brothers and sisters, if we're to follow in his footsteps in our suffering, what will that mean for us? Let me give you three words of exhortation that we see in our Lord's life. Number one, daily deny yourself and submit your will to our Father's will. Daily deny yourself and submit your will to our Father's will. We should pray Psalm 86. Teach me, O Lord, your way, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. All our prayers, friends, should be lathered and shaped with not my will, but your will. Father, I trust you, and I ask that you'll help me trust your heart when I can't trace your hand, that I would trust your goodness and not lean on my own understanding. I know you're with me. I know you love me. I know you're for me. So come what may. Friends, how many of us have been praying like that lately? Number two, think and pray before you act and speak. Think and pray before you act and speak. Parents, you teach your kids this because you were taught your kids this. And kids, listen up. If you're not obeying your parents, you know, listen to Pastor Blake here. What do your parents often teach you at the dinner table? Chew your food before you what? Speak. We should do the same with our words. Think and pray before we act and speak. We should ask some questions. Ask questions like this. When you get slander, critique, harsh words made against you, here's some questions. How can I please God with my response? Just, just pause and ask yourself, how can I please God with my response? What can I say next that is true, verifiable, biblical, and would be beneficial to those who hear? 
Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Or one that our family did for family devotion yesterday. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, Friends, also spend time this week going back in your worship guide to page 4. The catechism questions, they're all in the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Friends, as Christians, if we're going to represent Jesus rightly to the world, that is deeply confused, backwards, and often filled with a bunch of lies, we need God's help to be truth tellers and truth lovers. Think about those texts. Think about those catechism questions on page 4. A few other questions to ask yourself. Will what I say protect unity in my church or will it cause disunity in my church? Will what I say help or hurt my witness for Christ? Will what I say support or undermine my pastor and elders in my church? Another good question, does this person show any signs of a willingness to listen and reason, or are their hearts hard and resistant to change? Friends, if you're talking to someone like that, these following texts could be helpful for you. Proverbs 9, verse 8, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs 23, verse 9, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Or as Jesus famously said in Mark 6, 11, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That third exhortation that you heard in last week's sermon, repeating it again, when we're facing times of critique, accusation, false testimony, or slander, number three, truth and time walk hand in hand. Wait upon the Lord. Truth and time walk hand in hand. Wait upon the Lord. Friends, God will vindicate his name. He will vindicate his people, and he will do so in his timing as we live above reproach, and we speak the truth in love, and we persevere in all of it. Listen to this very convicting and super encouraging quote by Thomas Manton. He says, God is the most powerful asserter of our innocency. He has the hearts and tongues of men in his own hands and can either prevent the slanderer from uttering reproach or the hearer from the entertainment of the reproach. He that has such power over the consciences of men can clear up our innocency. Therefore, it is best to deal with God about it. And prayer, many times proves a better vindication than receiving an apology. I would encourage you to listen to that quote again on the internet sometime. Or just say, Blake, can you text it to me? I know you text people these quotes. Sure. Friends, to that end, God may teach each one of his disciples, each one of his children, the discipline of silence, especially when we're tempted to sin in our speaking. Pray that God would teach each one of us here at CCBC the discipline of silence. And following our Lord's example, he will teach each one of us that discipline 
even when we're wrongly accused and harshly criticized. God sees, God knows, God can convict, convert, and change any heart. Friends, sometimes the most powerful message an opponent, a spouse, a sibling, or an erring Christian can hear is a silent sermon. Power under control. Christ-like meekness. Christ-like discernment. Now, in our next verses, Jesus does finally speak up. And it's interesting what he says and who he says it to. Look with me in verses 61 to 62. But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Friends, Jesus knows he's going to die and he knows he's going to be raised. He said that repeatedly to his own disciples. And more than that, he knows that he will one day be seated, verse 62 says. Seated at the right hand of power, which was really just another way of stating things he's already said about himself in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He will be given all authority in heaven and on earth, coming on the clouds to rule and reign in judgment over every kingdom, including the Jewish Sanhedrin that was putting him on trial. And then again, Jesus also claimed to be David's greater son, yet also David's divine Lord of Psalm 110, verse 1. The one who after his resurrection and ascension will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He will be seated there until all his enemies are subdued under his feet. Friends, in just one reply, one sentence about his own identity, Jesus rocks the boat and hits a home run all in the same breath. Jesus is being put on trial by unjust and ungodly men that one day the table will be turned. He will be seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come back in judgment in the clouds and these men will bow the knee to Christ and see him as he really is. You know what's so interesting here? The high priest is telling God's eternal high priest he's committed blasphemy. Sin distorts the truth so badly that people will believe what is false, thinking it is true. Think about that. He charges him with blasphemy. Blasphemy in the eyes of the Jews was to ascribe God's honor to himself, to equate oneself with God. Here it is, Caiaphas is angry, rips his garments to express his disgust. He wants this man crucified. He wants this man judged. He wants this man to be removed from his presence. Then what happens? The physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse of Jesus begins. He was spat on like dirt on a dusty road. He was blindfolded as if he was a terrorist under investigation. He was slapped in the face as if he were a punching bag for a boxer. He was mocked and laughed at as if he were a joke, a cult leader, or a spiritual clown to make fun of. Friends, as sinners and sufferers, we should take notice of the silent strength of Jesus when he 
suffered. Because friends, when we suffer in obedience to God, we have the privilege to fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Philippians 3.10. God makes us more like Christ in suffering for his name, in obedience to his will, often more than any other thing he brings in our life. But what about Peter? He's the most outspoken and confident of all the 12 disciples. Where's he at? Well, look back with me in verse 54. You deliberately saw me skip that verse. Back in verse 54, it says that Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting there with the guards warming himself at the fire. Where's Peter? What's he doing? Is he going to speak up? Is he going to save the day? Is he going to do what he told Jesus he would do? Which leads to our last point. Point number three, learn from the sad denials by a disciple of Jesus. Look with me at verse 66 and following. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Friends, a once confident, passionate, outspoken disciple of Jesus is now a fearful, lying, cowardice bystander of Jesus. What sins did Peter commit here? Lying? Multiple times. The fear of man. He literally was scared to tell a little servant girl the truth about Jesus and himself. Friends, when we fear God, we will stand firm among men. But when we fear men, we will run and hide from God. Peter is hiding amongst the guards, similar to the way Adam and Eve ran and hid from God in the garden. Friends, realize that. When we fear people more than God, we often run and hide from God. But when we fear God more than men, we're able to stand before men. Thirdly, Peter committed the sin of self-preservation. It's really the idolatry of comfort. If he were to be found out and associated with Jesus, at the very least he would have been mocked. At the very least he would have been ostracized, possibly even killed. What do we learn from Peter's denials? One theologian said this, sins of omission leads to sins of commission. You might say, how? Remember, Jesus told him, Peter, you will deny me three times. And he said, no, I won't. You will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Peter was full of himself and not full of the spirit in those moments. 
What aspect of Peter's flesh overcame him when he was tempted? Spiritual pride. I'm good. I got this. I would never. The idolatry of comfort. He's warming himself by the fire, distancing himself from being close to Jesus, hiding among the crowds, isolating himself from the disciples, intermingling with unbelieving guards. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be known. He doesn't want to be heard around others as a Christ follower. And then he committed a sin we've all committed more than we realize. Timid silence. Timid silence. Peter had the opportunity to speak up. Bear witness for Christ. Participate in the sufferings of Christ. And he blew it. Friends, how often have we, in the name of I don't want to be ostracized, made fun of, looked down upon, or perhaps fired, don't speak up when God gives us a very clear opportunity to do so. Friends, if you struggle with timidity, as I do, 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7 is a good thing to study and pray about. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. The end of our passage then, concludes with a weak, broken, and deeply saddened young man. It's when he hears the rooster crow that Peter remembers his Lord's words. And then it hits him. His sin is caught up to him. He's failed his Lord, and now Peter knows it. To my non-Christian friend, what regrets do you have in your life? When you realize you've blown it, made big mistakes, let others down, even worse, sinned against God, what do you do? Where do you put your hope in life and death and when you have bitter regrets? To my fellow brothers and sisters, what regrets do you and I have in our life? What time have we wasted that God has given us? What talents and gifts and opportunities have we squandered and we can't rewind the tape? We can't unscramble the egg. John MacArthur, who has been in pastoral ministry for over 50 years, once said, after being in ministry for over 52 years, people often ask me, do you have any regrets looking back? I always say, I wish I would have sinned less and loved more. Friends, what sins have you and I committed in the past that still haunt us and hurt us today? Failure from your childhood. Failure from your teenage or college years. Failure in your marriage. Failure in your parenting. Failure in your evangelism, failure in your sexual purity, failure with your finances, failure in taming your tongue. What failures of our past that you and I have committed sometimes makes it hard for us to believe Jesus still loves us? If you would, please turn to the front page of our worship guide. The very front page. You'll notice there's a quote at the top. We change those typically once a month just for uh, the three nerds that might care. Notice what it says. Richard Sibbs once said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Now, if you've got a pen, I want you to cross out the word us and put your name. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in Blake. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in Lori. 
There is more mercy in Christ than sin in Sheila and Jeff and Ian and Casey. Friends, if you think you have failed so much that Jesus could never love, forgive, restore, reconstitute, revive, and use you, you don't know the Jesus of this book. He is a savior of failures. He is a savior of people who've bombed it. He's a savior of those who have wept bitterly for sins they cannot undo, they cannot rewind, because when you look to Jesus, there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. For every look at our failures before God, we must look to Christ who obeyed God for us. Historically, many Protestant churches in Europe placed a rooster atop their steeples. The rooster has been a Christian symbol since God used it to show the weakness of man with Peter and the triumph of Christ in the resurrection. Through the cross, even the man who three times denied the Savior was forgiven, loved, restored, and then sent out to zealously live for the glory of God. Friends, there is hope in the gospel for sinners everywhere. There is hope in the gospel for sinners even in this room this morning. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Who wrote that? Peter did. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in all our failures and in all our sinful choices and even words we should have spoken but we remain quiet and words we've spoken when we should have been quiet, Lord, we ask that you would continue to show us that redeeming love that can turn what was meant for evil and turn it for good. Lord, even for us who are being or have been or will be criticized, crushed under the weight of slander and harsh words, even from people we love and care about, Lord, teach us what it means to suffer well by looking to Christ who did that perfectly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.